Welcome to the Prosperous Piano Teacher Podcast. I'm Ashley Young, pianist, instructor, and business coach, and I'm here to help you dream big about what your studio could be if you are willing to open your mind and level up your business skills. I'm going to share the tangible strategies that I've learned for streamlining and scaling your studio so that you can align your business to work for your life instead of letting your business control your life. I am so happy that you're here. Let's dive in. Hello, hello. Welcome into another episode of the Prosperous Piano Teacher Podcast. I am Ashley, and today I am joined by Tim Topham from the uh, Top Music Co. And I'm so excited for Tim to be here. Tim, hello. Welcome in. Hello. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. Um, Tim is joining us on the podcast to share a little bit about his journey and to talk about some really exciting uh, new ventures that he has in his business going on at the moment, um, which we're going to dive into as the episode gets going. But to start us out, Tim, would you be willing to give us a little bit of like a, a historical overview of you and your journey in music and how you got to where you are right now? Sure. Yeah. It's been a very roundabout journey and a very unusual one, which I think has contributed to the way that I'm able to help teachers and see things from a different perspective. So I, I studied piano when I was eight, I started music and I quite loved it. I had an amazing teacher and went through, did some exams, all that kind of stuff that you do over here in Australia. And then by about age 12, I think I moved on to some jazz lessons. And then I did music through school a little bit. I dabbled here and there. But what I really enjoyed most was accompanying musicals, uh, playing in pit orchestras, because I got the chance to do that at my school. Um, and I did go on to study music, but really my heart was actually being taken away with outdoor education. So I, I've always wanted to be a teacher, but I really didn't see myself as a classroom teacher. And I really loved all the outdoor education, which we have over here is um, taking groups of kids away on school camps and things like that. So the rock climbing and abseiling, canoeing, all, all that. I loved that. That was what I wanted to do. And so my focus shifted right over to that. And I taught um, in England, I taught in, in Western Australia, and I focused on all sorts of different subjects, actually. I was relief teaching, I taught maths and music and PE and outdoor ed and computer systems. And I just have had a really mixed uh, experience of teaching widely different groups of students in lots of different settings, lots of different schools from running a campus. I was head of a campus for a while, so looking after hundreds of kids to looking after one-on-one -on -one lessons, um, doing doing piano. Uh, but the piano side of things really, so I did all of that other teaching and I came back to piano um, in my, I guess, early thirties really, uh, which is when I suddenly, I came back, I, I'd, I'd done a lot of these this work in other areas of teaching in other parts of the world. And I came back to Melbourne, which is my base and where I grew up. And I wanted to become a music producer. So I, I was remixing dance music and wanted to be played in clubs and on radio and all that kind of fun stuff. But at the same time as doing that, I wasn't making any money. So I thought, well, I should probably start teaching uh, because that's something I do know how to do. I, I'm, a, I'm a teacher, I know how to do that and I know how to play piano. So, well, why don't I give it a shot? And that threw me into uh, the exam system here in Australia, because I got a student who was midway through preparing for a grade four exam, which is no small 
uh, feet. I mean, it takes a little bit of work. And I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> Literally had no idea. So I reconnected with my childhood piano teacher from back when I was eight to 12, who had long, long since retired, but was only too happy to help. And she uh, took me under her wing and guided me for quite a few years, actually, and really inspired me to make this my next stage in my career. Uh, the, the, the dance music production was never going to bring in an income. It didn't. I gave it three <laughs> years. Uh, I, I had some milestones. I got some music played in clubs and on radio, and that was all very cool, Ooh. but no income. Yeah. So the piano started to take over and I started to deep dive into it and really get inspired by it and want to learn more. And then I wanted to become a better performer myself. So I did a diploma uh, of performance and I just got completely immersed in it and loved it. And that's when I started recording videos and sharing the things I was doing because it was quite left field what I was doing because I hadn't had that traditional trajectory through mm -hmm. studying music, conservatory, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I really came at it a little bit differently. And I didn't really know at the time, but other teachers at the school saw what I was doing, heard the things that I was doing with my students. and like, what are you doing? That is so cool. And, and the kids and were loving it. And the my student, I couldn't take any more students. There was more kids wanting to play piano. And so I started recording videos to tell other people about what I was doing. I started writing blog posts and that was the genesis uh, of top music and helping yeah. other teachers. Very cool. I thank you so much for taking us on that journey because I, you know, when someone is established in what they're doing and I'm doing my research for this podcast episode, I'm seeing a little bit about you over here and a little bit about you over here, but I was like, I can't piece together the whole story and I, I have to know. <laughs> yeah, it's a very roundabout story. <laughs> yeah, but it's a great story. And I think it speaks volumes to um, the fact that you were able to like teach so many other different subjects and really bring that creativity to what you were doing in piano lessons and do it in a different way because mm. i do i do see that disconnect sometimes too with other teachers of like it's it can be hard to break out of the box that you know right and so mm, if you were absolutely. if you grew up in the classical tradition or you were trained by the same kind of teachers and then you end up teaching how they teach and then it can be it can be difficult to break that so um i love that that's how you came about it and I taught English in Korea for a year in my in oh. my 20s when I was kind of going away from music for a moment. And I think of teaching as like there's there's music and then there's just like general teaching stuff. And then, of course, there's the overlap. And mm -hmm. I'd be curious to know, is there anything that sticks out in your mind as like the biggest thing or the handful of biggest things that you learned while teaching other subjects, but that really informed how you approach teaching piano lessons? Now that is a fantastic question. And you know what? I haven't I haven't actually thought exactly what that might be. I think I think it just I think the main thing is I think there's probably two aspects to this. One is I didn't know the traditional path mm -hmm. that a student should take. So in some ways I was naive and therefore kind of did things my own way. Sure. which allowed me to to take a different stance which isn't related necessarily to the journey i took although it is because i didn't take a traditional path let's say so right. uh that's one aspect i guess the other one is and this is a fact that i took from just working with so many kids in so many schools is the connection and rapport you have with students mm 
is super critical in order to particularly control a classroom. Uh, we don't have to worry about that in one-on-one -on -one lessons, of course, but there's, there's that element of, of how do you actually engage all these kids that are in front of you when you have lots of them and trying to narrow that down to, okay, well, what do I do with one, one-on-one -on -one students? So two things I've brought from that. One is the concept of curriculum and looking at plans and structures and scaffolds across a student's time with you. That's something that is very uh, obvious, or not obvious, but very important to a teacher in a classroom situation. You're always thinking curriculum and longer term plans and how does this fit into the bigger scheme and things like that. We don't necessarily think that way in instrumental lessons. So that was one thing that the classroom teaching brought me, uh, that element of, yes, it's important to have structure and scaffold and sequence in a learning program and also a goal that you're trying mm -hmm. to achieve. Um, the other one is, and we're so lucky in instrumental education, particularly in one-on-one -on -one lessons, is having a student-centered approach. And so I really learned a lot about connecting with students, finding their passions and trying to bring that out in whatever subject I was teaching at the time. And I think this is really important for us as teachers in our instrumental lessons or voice lessons that we really are focused on what the student wants to achieve. Uh, and I talk about this a, a bit in my book where when, when you're teaching a six-year-old, there's still some autonomy you can give that child, but you're gonna be taking the lead most of the time. For a 60-year-old, that is completely flipped. You really want 80% their choice and where they wanna go and maybe 20% you. So, and there's a big continuum across the spectrum right through uh, as students develop, but any, you know, teenagers and adults, you really want to give them autonomy, uh, agency, goal setting, all of that kind of stuff. It, it's just absolutely critical at that age. So I think, you know, these are some of the elements that I think I've brought from my education experience. Yes. Yeah. It sounds like it because I mean, coming into teaching piano lessons already having such a wealth of knowledge about one-on-one -on -one and group and kind of how to manage the classroom, how to really have that student-centered approach. I can imagine only contributed to you having like a full studio really quickly. Um, yeah. I am curious because, and we're going to definitely dive in and talk about the book because in, in looking at your book, it's, I, I love how creative it is. And I love <laughs> that really the purpose is to break people out of the traditional method and to think creatively. And you give such great, like tactical ways to do that. And even lesson plans to do that. Um, but I am curious the one part in your journey where you said like you had a student that wanted to do exams, was that kind of like a one-off situation or did you go, end up going in that direction? Because that's, at least speaking from personal experience, when I've had students that want to do exams, I myself creatively kind of like rally against that <laughs> because I don't <laughs> love all the structure. Like the structure is important and absolutely I teach scales and technique and, you know, all of that, but it's very structured and there's like mm -hmm. very specific things that each student has to do in a very, very certain way. And so I'm curious, like how much of your journey was involved with exams? Mm. I think exams are great. Uh, there, there is no doubt that they are highly motivating for some students um, Absolutely. when used in the right way. And I think that's yeah. the critical thing. And so the thing I am against and that has very little merit is 
a teaching program that just goes exam to exam to exam to exam. You know, one year you do grade one, you do grade two, three, four, yes. five, because it just gets harder and harder. Students just struggle and struggle more. It becomes absolutely miserable. Students learn less and less repertoire and it's awful. Yeah. And there's really no point. And they get to year eight, grade eight, if they've done it, and then they quit. Yeah, yeah, I finished mm -hmm. piano. Yeah, you know, it's like, oh, it's just so depressing. Yeah. <laughs> Used in the right way. And this is how I tried to do it. So the first thing is that I would always say to a new student's parents, I will, I won't, won't send your child for an exam in the first year. Just being upfront with you now, there are more important things I need to do with them than the exam. Yeah. We'll talk about that later on. So that was one thing that I was very clear on. Uh, secondly, I moved to a, an, ex, an approach for exams whereby they would only do an exam if they were already playing like at least double the number of pieces you would need for an exam at that level comfortably so you could go okay well you know eight to ten pieces at this level pretty well yeah. let's choose four and let's get you examined if you want to do that and the student's positive about it and it's it's um structured in the right way rather than oh, okay start of the year what are you going to for what are your four exam pieces for this year i think if you just flip that thinking i think they can be quite positive and they can also be used in in conjunction with all this fun creative, deeper connection stuff, composing, improvising, you still have time for all of that if you're not stressing purely about an exam. Yeah, I love that. It's not, so it sounds like you had some pretty great ways to kind of do a hybrid version of these exams and some things in place that would make it so that it wasn't just jumping from exam to exam, which honestly, yeah. that was always my issue with it as well, is it just, it felt relentless and also it got really tiring for, for the students and for me to teach that way. Um, yeah. And you miss it's out. It's been called on so the much. Exam Express. Yeah, exactly. Express. Yeah. It was like yeah. Literally, you're on an express train to, I don't know where. Yeah. <laughs> not, a good, right. not a good place. Right. And I think that's the point, too. And I, I had that thought when I was looking, when I was looking and reading through some of your book is like thinking about that end goal of like, wh where do you want your students to end up? And I know that that's, you know, the teacher factors into that. And we all have our own ideas. And then, of course, the parents factor into that and the students factor into that. But like, what is the end goal with exams? Because I think if you're on the exam express, as you aptly called it, there the, the end goal um, is unclear. <laughs> the, the point yeah. is, un is, is less clear. Um, Okay. And it's often not related to the student. That's the thing. It's maybe yes. it's pushed by the parent or expected by the school or whatever it is. Right. Yes. It, it, I mean, there are, there's the one percenter of students who love it, relish it, do every exam, keep playing, but it's right. the 99 percenters that we really have to focus on. Yeah, totally. Um, so then shifting gears just a little bit. So you had your studio and you started creating videos and you started writing blog posts. And are, so are you still teaching or at what point did things kind of mm. shift more to now do you mostly work with other teachers? Yeah. So that shift happened when I created a, a course for teachers. So after a while of the blogging, I built up quite a bit of an email list of teachers mm -hmm. and I emailed everyone and just said, Hey, what do you need help with the most? And I had a feeling I knew the answer anyway, but I wanted a confirmation. And it was all about teaching pop music. How do I mm. help a student learn a pop song? And so I created a course on that and this is in 2014. So I'd been blogging okay. for four years by this stage. And, and recording videos. And so I created this course and sold it at the end of 2014. And it did really, really well and was great success. But then during 2015, 
what happened is I started getting lots of emails from people who are starting to work through the course, asking me all these questions. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is great, but we need to connect all these people together somehow because other people can help answer these questions and just let's get sharing more. So that's when I thought about building the community, which has become Top Music Pro. So in answer to your question, the launch of Top Music Pro, which was 2016 in March, was the last year of full-time teaching at a school that I did. Mm. Um, from then on, I moved to just a few students at home while I was focusing mainly on the business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, okay. and that was an important turning point because I had to really think, because I was, I was a head of keyboard at, at Xavier College in Melbourne. It was a prestigious position and uh, it was enjoyable work. And I had to really sort of go, okay, well, am I making the right call here? This is, this is obviously a risk to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to run my own thing. Uh, but what I have, and, and I know there's probably listeners of the show who, who have either been at that point or may come to that point at some stage in the future. And it is a challenge whenever you build something as a side hustle, does it ever flip over and become the full hustle? Uh, and you will have this moment where you have to make a, make a call on it. And so I was able to de-risk it somewhat by having launched the community and seeing some growth and having some members. And so I already had some income coming through. Everything was looking positive. Uh, and I was like, okay, I think if I don't do this now, I'm going to regret it because I'm never going to know what it could have been. Totally. Yeah. And I think it's, it can be so scary listeners of the podcast know. So I stopped teaching private lessons, um, this last summer and mm. it's, it is, it's terrifying because it's a big transition. And I think the other part that people don't think about is like when you have like, you know, your hands and your feet in different things, it's really hard to go all in on something. And so mm. I think like having the side thing and growing both things to a certain extent can work. And I know that's how most people get started. Um, but I do think that, pro well, I guess I'll pose it as a question to you. Do you think that really stepping back from the private teaching and going in all in allowed it to grow to the point that it is now because you could focus on it? Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Yes. But it wasn't for me, it was, I was teaching, it was full-time teaching in a school. So it was, yeah. if I was teaching privately only a few hours every afternoon, I could probably have continued to do both, but this yeah. was, it was impossible to do both properly. Yeah. And it was already kind of killing me <laughs> during that year, that 2016 was tough. Yeah. Uh, and so I think, yeah, every, everyone will be in a sort of different place. Um, but yes, there does come a point where you can't give enough time to both to make both work. Mm -hmm. And that's when you have to make the call. Yeah, totally. And now Top Music has grown significantly, right? And you have your, your community and also lots of new content that's being put in there um, pretty regularly by other, other wonderful uh, teachers as well, yes? Yeah, we're really stoked to have other teachers contribute now to the community. Because I've always said right from the start, the first video I recorded to in introduce people to the community, I distinctly remember saying, because it, it was important for me to say, I'm not the best teacher and I don't know everything. And But what I do know is how to bring amazing people together and to share things and to network and build community. And that's what I've done. And yeah. that's super important because, I, you know, I'm, I'm not an amazing performer. I still get quite terrified if I have to perform something really hard in front of sure. people. In fact, I'd prefer to speak or improvise in front of people just so yeah, there's lots of things that I don't know everything about. And so that's why a community I think is so important. 
Absolutely. And I, I, I think that's great because I do, I've said it on the podcast before, but I think the best teachers are the ones that admit they don't know everything and are always right. willing to learn and are always yes. willing to try to do it better because really you have to practice what you preach, right? And if you're always just telling other people what to do, um, but never really willing to take advice or open your mind to new information that I don't think that makes for a very great teacher. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and look, it's, it's not, going to work in the future really i mean it's already starting to to, to change that that shift from teacher being the wise sage to teacher really being a mentor a coach and a guide along the journey with a student is pretty critical and becoming more and more important absolutely so tell me about how the book came to be like if you were if this was a movie and this is the story like where was where were you when you first had the idea and how did it develop into actually you know the book that you sent me um that is full of amazing information <laughs> wow well the book the genesis of the book came from i think it was my sex so the first course that i created was the one on teaching pop music okay the second one oh, oh okay in the top first five three to five courses was the course about no book beginners. So it all goes back to 2015 when I went to a conference in America. It's the first one I spoke at over there. And I listened to the keynote speech, which was all about music learning theory. I don't know if you've talked about that on the podcast or your listeners will know about it. Uh, but it's by it's Ed, Dr. Edwin Gordon's theory that music should be taught in a similar way to a language with reading and writing being left to last and mm. improvising, composing, listening, uh, being the first most important skills for acquisition. And it really resonated with me and it got me thinking. And then I started deep diving into this. I've had a life of deep dives down into <laughs> new ideas and things. I don't know about you. Uh, Wikipedia rabbit holes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, a little bit like that though. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, I'm going to find out everything I can about this, and I'm going to totally. try stuff yes. out. And uh, I and I found, way. yeah, and I found that there was um, a method that had been written um, by Marilyn Lowe based on this, and I got it, and I just struggled so much to understand how to how to use it, as a lot of yeah. people have. Uh, so I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this myself, and use take elements of music learning theory and Kadai and Orff and Suzuki and all of these ideas that I've learned about over the last after that stage six years of blogging and podcasting and interviewing people and come up with something myself and I just started a new student his name is Josh just found a picture of him the other day actually which I posted in one of our groups oh, so, <laughs> so, so cute to see he uh came to have lessons as a beginning he was seven i think it was and i committed myself i said all right i'm going to do something different for this kid i am going to commit now to not using a method book for 10 weeks which is one term here in australia mm -hmm. so and josh was I, your, your guinea pig he was my guinea pig yeah okay. and so i tried out idea elements of this beforehand but i yeah. hadn't put a structured curriculum together and so he was the guinea pig for the for the whole program and I kind of went, oh my goodness, okay, <laughs> what do I do now? This is gonna be really, this is gonna be quite a task to put together, but I did. So I, I put together a program for him using these these ideas of, well, what should you do if you're not gonna get out the method book and point at middle C and show them middle C on the piano and go C, C, C in that first lesson, because that's probably that most boring thing you can do. If you don't do that, what do you do? And so I, I 
decided on this sort of program, which has become No Book Beginners. And so then I recorded a course about how to do it because it was really successful. Josh loved it. And we saw a lot over time, a lot of musicality in him that I hadn't seen in other students who had, who I'd taken more through that reading first approach. Mm -hmm. So I thought we've got to get this out there to more teachers. So that's when I created the course. And then, so long story short, answer to your question. <laughs> Earlier this year, I, I, and I've wanted to write a book, but mm -hmm. I hadn't, I hadn't for some time that I hadn't worked out what it would be on. Earlier this year, I started writing the book that I thought it was going to be. And it was a much bigger book, actually, about all the concepts and ideas I have about music education. And I soon realized this is actually too epic <laughs> and it's too big to start with. But one of the chapters was all about no book beginners. Okay. And so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to focus on that. Yeah. And get this out as as one of the most important things I believe in and that students and teachers can do. And so that's when I started sort of refocusing the book on no book beginners. And I finished writing in about April and then it went into all that editing process and stuff we can talk about if you want to. And now, yes, oh. I can finally hold it in my hands. Yay. So cool. Oh, that's so exciting. <laughs> I bet it's so, like, I know whenever I complete a project, it's like to have it and to be able to see it, like, and you actually have the physical copy you just held up, held up for those yes. that can't see that. Um, yes. It's so exciting. You're like, I bet it's like, it's so beautiful. Yay. <laughs> it is. Uh, it, it really means something. And, it, and yeah. because a lot of my work is online, I don't actually get to do this right. very often. It's probably yeah. the same for you. Yeah, you could like point to it on your shelf and show people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I was able to do it for, for an event that I ran in 2020. So I was, that's like, a okay, there's a thing here. I can see people and this is my thing. Yeah. Uh, but yes, podcast, you can do endless podcasts and blogs and stuff, but you can't hold any of that. So it has been totally. nice to do it. Yeah. Now, okay, I have so many questions, but my first question is, is it self-published? Did you publish it yourself? Yeah. Okay, cool. Just through Amazon or something? Yes. So we are publishing. So we're, we're self, literally self-publishing. So people can download uh, the PDF version oh, through cool. our site with the audio book yeah. if they want to. Or if they're more Kindle readers, they can get it on Amazon Kindle. Or if they want the paperback, cool. they can get Amazon as well. And you you have an audio book of it too? Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's great. Did I, you record I did. it? I did. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Um, Okay, so when you were going through the process of writing the book, can you break it down a little bit from the perspective of like uh, other teachers that are listening to this podcast that might have these creative ideas that might not like not know where to start or might not like think they can do it. And I know for you, you came at this book after a long period of having created a lot of content. And I talk mm. about that a lot on the podcast. Like once you get into creating content, it becomes so much easier because it's like a muscle and you work out that muscle and it gets stronger and stronger and more flexible and then mm. it's easier to go to different varieties and different formats so i'm sure it was a little bit different since you were starting this book as a seasoned content creator but what was it like for you to start writing it like were there any hurdles that you had to overcome of like either i don't know how to do this thing and i need to learn or i creatively feel blocked and i don't know if i can do this I, the, the trigger for me actually doing it was reading some books about writing books. Mm. And one of them said, one of them gave quite a structured program to how you should actually write. 
Oh, interesting. And it, it gave it a, a framework, i.e., what's your goal number of words or how big do you want your book to be? And I wanted about 100 pages, which is about 30,000 words. Yeah. And so if you break that down into per day sort of amounts, then you, you can set yourself a goal of I need to write 1,000 words a day or whatever it is. Oh, and sure. that suddenly becomes much more achievable than yeah. I'm writing a whole book. So that's one mindset shift that can be really valuable. Just to say, blocking off a time every day, which I did, that is purely for writing, even if you don't feel like it, it's like playing the piano or whatever your instrument is, you just, even if you don't wanna practice, you sit down on the piano and you get your books out and you just go for one minute and then suddenly you're there for 30 minutes and you know, and the same thing I think happens with writing. If you have something to say, it will come out but that blank page thing is, is truly awful. So yeah. <laughs> another tip I have is to use Scrivener, which is okay. a software uh, that a lot of writers use, Scriven Scrivener. Um, they can look it up. It's a, an app that you can download um, or I think it's, yeah, it's an app on the computer or, or on your phone or device. It's really great for structuring and allowing you to move things around, which I found really valuable. It wasn't until I started using that and getting out of Word or Google Docs that it started to flow and become more structured for me. Okay. And then the first step, which one of these books recommended, which, which sounded crazy, was to do six hours of outlining. And I oh. thought, what, what on earth? That sounds ridiculous. But my goodness, it was actually really, really useful. Yeah. And the structure of the outlet, it's not one, it's not one session, by the way, you would do this in one or two hour blocks over the okay. course of a few days. And the goal is to write down everything, all your chap, you know, the possible topics you could write about under this heading and just put them onto cards. So Scrivener mm. has this great outlining, they're kind of like post-it notes, cards yeah. on your which can become the chapter headings and things in time. So you kind of have this brainstorming and brain dumping of all your ideas and you have them all laid out in front of you. And then you can start to see during this outlining process, oh, similar things or crossover, or these could be a, a section of the book or that doesn't really fit. So we'll move it over here, things like that. And I did actually spend six hours. I thought it was outrageous. Why would I, what, shouldn't I just start writing? But it was actually one of the most powerful things to do. So I'd really encourage anyone that wants to write a book to set aside some time to do some kind of outlining process. And you could do it literally on dot points, sorry, on post-it notes physically on a board yeah. or wall. But uh, I, I used, as I said, this software called Scrivener and it just really allowed you to sort of say, oh, okay, now I've got topics to write about because mm -hmm. that's the thing you don't want to have a blank page. Once you've totally. got outlines, then you've got a sentence. So I might have history of method books. And then when I come back the next day to actually do that thousand words, I can go and start writing on that topic. I don't have to think, what am I going to write today? I'm going to go, oh, okay, it's my topic. Let's go. Oh. hope that helps. Oh my gosh, there's so much wisdom in there. And I think <laughs> it, it really helps. And as you were describing it, I was also thinking like, it's taken, it took me, my own process to figure it out but that's actually how i plan out courses and even youtube videos now it's like i have to start like the the kind of the overarching idea and then i do have to start with an outline that then gets ordered mm. around and when i was first doing a lot of youtube content it's like i would film the video and then i have to like edit it around because i wasn't doing that uh, step of doing the outline and so it's like it was all chaos and it that took would so be much painful. more time 
Yeah. yeah but so I think that really, I, I can totally understand like putting the time into the outline, imagining that it's not going to be that important, but then you're like, oh, this is the book. Now it's easy to write those 1000 words per day. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. the critical hurdle to get over. It's yeah. one, number one, setting the time. But number one is belief that you can do it. Yes. Number two is setting aside the time. Number three is not starting with a blank page. Yeah. That makes sense. And then you said something else in the first tip that you were describing um, where it was kind of, you know, breaking down the process of like, you want it to be a hundred pages, that's 30,000 words, a thousand words a day. And you would just set the time to do that. And my question to that is, did you have to have any rules about like, I'm not allowed to delete it at the end <laughs> or, <laughs> or like, I'm not allowed to read it right then. Cause I know when I've, even when I've written like, you know, sales emails or stuff, it's like, I have to force myself to do it and then step away and I have to revisit mm. it on another day. Like I can't write it and edit it all at the same time. Or I like kind of end up in this loop where I'm like, it's awful. Start over. It's awful. <laughs> um, did yeah. you experience any of that? Yeah, that's, that's a great, a great advice is to not delete anything just to brainstorm when you're first writing and you're doing those thousand words a day 500 words a day it doesn't really matter how many words whatever suits you mm -hmm. when you do it you don't question what you're writing and you don't critique it absolutely you just get your writing out there or yeah. you or you do your research and bring quotes in or whatever it is you'll do the editing and the whittling down later on just get the content in there don't yeah Yes. Don't be critical of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, and then how many months slash hours did you spend editing before it sounds like, did you pass it along to an editor or did you work with an editor? What was that process like? Mm. Uh, so yeah, I worked with a couple of different editors. So the first round of editing, uh, so the first answer to the question, how long did I edit? So the writing process was probably over the course of, February, March, April ish. So three okay. months ish. That's not, that's not um, a long time. Not a long time, but yeah. I also knew the content and I knew yeah. what I wanted to say for mm -hmm. the most part, it was about structuring how I was going to say it and doing right. some research obviously as well. Uh, after that, I gave it to a structural, what's called, there's lots mm -hmm. of different editing types. The first one was a, a structural editor who mm -hmm took the manuscript, read it, and then did major structural edits and changes and the basic, just basic editing, I guess, just to make, make it work. Mm -hmm. So she rearranged some sections. For example, I had, I think the introduction became the conclusion out of oh, <laughs> it. Stuff like that. Yeah. I, yeah. Quite significant changes, but it's just from a different perspective. And then I look at it now and go, ah, that's perfect. Yes, that makes sense. Yeah. So that process happened. And then it went to what's called a copy and line editor. And they are the people that follow a style guide that you agree on and make sure every full stop's in the right place. Are you using a dash here or a long dash or a short dash? Or, oh my gosh. Or, what kind of dot points? Are you using dot points? All of that. Yeah. And that's another. So the first, first round of editing is about six weeks worth. That next one is six to eight weeks ish okay. for this length of a book to do properly. Uh, then it goes for internal design. So that's mm -hmm. where they actually structure it on. Oh, while this is happening, I'm getting the cover designed as well. So then the internal design happens, the covers put on it, and then it's sent to a proofreader who proofreads and checks things like, oh, when it says go to page 56, is that still page 56 after all this editing stuff like that? Right. Um, and then it comes back to you. Uh, sorry, it keeps coming back to you, obviously, after all these rounds to check and um, 
I came back to me after that round, we made some final adjustments and we got a proof printed, needed some more changes, final proof, and then we were done. So then it was, goes up on, then it's edited for Kindle, which is another round of editing because <laughs> that's another different oh process. Gosh. Yeah. Because it looks different. It has to look different and the location numbers are different, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, right. Um, so it, it's, it's a good, you want to set aside at least six months for that whole process to happen if you're doing it properly. Right. And that's fast. Uh, yeah. The people I've been working with say that can easily take nine to 12 months. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Because that's a lot of back and forth and just a lot of ugh, all the detailed stuff that is my least favorite, but is so important. Like at that stage of the process, that is the focus, right? Yeah. And everyone yeah. listening will have read a book at some stage that has typos and missed things that should not have been missed. And I was just and reading I, I, Yeah, I dare say in our field, when people self-publish, uh, it I've seen it a lot and it just detracts instantly it from does. the content even if it's great content mm -hmm. it's like uh, that shouldn't have been shouldn't be there so that so I think totally. it and that's why I was happy because this obviously there's an investment you know in all of this it's yeah. quite a few thousand dollars worth of editing but I can now look at this book and go I actually don't think there's an error in it and I'm yeah. so proud of it and it's professional it looks great yeah, I, I, I will say that I noticed that I read a lot of self-published books like in the entrepreneur space and I was reading one recently and I won't call it out, but it was like a, a huge named person and I was reading their book and I was like, oh my gosh, you just have like an R at the end of this word that is not, like it, it makes it a different word and it doesn't make any sense. And I had that exact situation that you were describing where I was like, this is so interesting because you're this huge name and I would imagine that like probably like 50 people at least have looked I've at this book. It. Yeah. Mm. And, and it makes you kind of question it a little bit. Um, but in, in looking in everything that I read in your book, I was like, this is, it is so well done. And I, I'm not going to lie because you sent me, um, like you sent me a sample that had the table of contents first before I got the rest of the book. And it, I was like, the structure of this is great because I'm a processes person. And I definitely think, and like, how mm. can I organize this in the best way to teach it the best? And so that there is an mm. end goal. And so I noticed that like in your introduction and in the first little bit of the book in comparing that with the table of contents, I was like, oh, wow, I like the way that this flows. This makes a lot of sense. Um, and even just how right. detailed your table of contents was. Like, it was so great to be able to, see and i'm not is that what's published in the book yeah i'm just i'm just yeah. looking at it now yeah, yeah like how yeah. detailed your table and how descriptive the titles are i could tell that a lot of thought and care went into it and so all that to say like you. bravo yeah it, it, <laughs> it's really and also then of course the information that's presented i will be honest i didn't get a chance to read the whole book but i i jumped around and read quite a bit of it and i was like this is it's really, really good information as well. Like all of the content in there is so valuable. I was having a conversation with someone the other day that was saying it was really nice. Like when you have, when you find something, whether it's a book, she was talking about a podcast, but where you really walk away feeling like, oh, wow, I have several new ideas now, even though like I've been teaching for 20 years, mm -hmm. um, I have several new ideas and it wasn't just fluff. And like every mm. little section of the book I read, I was like, it's so thought provoking. It's so insightful. It's so creative. And I was walking away with little nuggets, even though I consider my teaching style to be similar to yours based Pretty off of what and, I have yeah. seen. Yeah. Yeah. And so that That's was great. really cool too, because it is jam packed. Yeah. And I never wanted to create, anytime I've created content, it's probably the same for you. I've always wanted to make sure that it's relevant and practical and useful for teachers to use because I've sat in however many meetings or workshops or lectures and just going oh my goodness this is like how is this relevant <laughs> it's not relevant give me here? something useful 
So I've really focused on that through my whole career of, of really making sure things are practical and useful um, and come from the, you know, chalk face, old school word, but, you know, from teachers who have been there and done it and are doing it. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I wanted to put lots of quotes in there from teachers who are, are yeah. using it too, just to show, yeah, this is what you can do. And particularly answer that that thought that some teachers who we were talking about earlier who have that uh, more traditional focus and a teaching perhaps how they were taught, uh, a lot of them think they're not very creative people and they can't do this stuff. And so I really wanted to speak to that in one, in one of the sections of the book. I talk about how many teachers thought that and have used this. And then I've quoted them about all the things that they're doing now that have taken this another step further into even more creative realms that suit their studio and their teaching, which is fabulous right. from my perspective. Absolutely. And it totally makes sense because I think what I found is in my own journey and also in working with other teachers, like when you think there's a there's a limitation there, um, it's almost like the act of questioning the limitation and thinking creatively about the solution, like begets more of that, right? It's like all mm -hmm. of a sudden you opened up a box of thinking creatively, creatively and you can't stop. So it completely mm -hmm. makes sense to me that people that, you know, start using the notebook beginner method, then branch out and come up with their own things and continue down that path of like creatively thinking about teaching because that just makes logical sense that that would be the mm. next step absolutely yeah cool well so for for people that are listening um today if they've never heard of you they've never heard of the book what's like the bite size if you had to explain it to somebody so that they could know you know go check out this book how would you describe it and then can you let us know where to find it as well sure thank you the book is designed for specifically for piano teachers who feel that starting with teaching reading in lesson one may be not the most fun and enjoyable thing that they could do in their first lesson. And it answers the question, well, why are we doing this? What, what's the history that's brought us to this point? What impact is that having? And if we all agree that maybe there's some other, some other things, there's more musical things that we could do in those first few lessons that will actually have a lasting impact on students, like getting them singing, like getting them tapping and chanting and clapbacks and echo play and composing and improvising. If we can get them doing that, well, that's great, but what do I actually do? And the book answers that question. And so the first part of the book really talks about those, those, questions of how we've got here and what we're doing and why and what impact it's having and and some of the things that are being missed out on. And then the second part actually features five weeks worth of comprehensive step by steps. Here's what to say, here's what to do, lesson plans to step teachers through how to do this for the first time, even if they've never done it or don't think they can do it. Because I can tell you right now, you absolutely can. And we provide with a companion website that's completely free. We provide backing tracks and notation cool. and all sorts of resources, me, videos of me sitting at the piano teaching this stuff so you can see it in action. Uh, all of that's provided so that you can have huge success with this and all our teachers do. And the great thing is that it's completely flexible. You can take one idea and use it with one student, try it out, dip your toe in, and then go, all right, why don't I try the first three lessons with my next beginner student and see how it mm -hmm. goes. Or the first five lessons. You don't have to do all, there's actually 10 lessons in the program because I did 10 weeks with Josh, as I mentioned before. But a lot of teachers just use the first three to five and then they start introducing reading on the side or they continue the two streams of reading and notebook creativity. So there's lots of different approaches that you can use. It's really flexible. 
that's why I call it a framework rather than a method. And yeah. I really, yeah, commend teachers to try it out. There's also these cool self-assessments, which people have really enjoyed through it. So you can, like, there's a self-assessment, how creative are your current piano lessons, for example, and you kind of rank oh, yourself according, <laughs> according to a scale, how student centered is your teaching right now? Uh, and the first one's how, what is it? Teaching beginners. Oh yeah. Just about teaching. Beginners. Anyway, it's all in there. And would love to have as many teachers um, as possible explore it and use it. So all the information is over at topmusic.co slash book, or you can search for No Book Beginners on Amazon if you want the paperback. Um, but cool. if you do want the audio book, that's over on my site. So that's the topmusic.co slash book link. Okay. And I'll include those in the show notes for this episode. So those of you that are listening, you can just find that, find the links in the show notes. Um, and then if, yeah, of course, if you had one, I always ask my guests this as like the last question, if you had one thing that's been helpful for you or one message that you wanted to pass along to teachers, um, who are really excited to like level up their business in some way, whether that's courses or writing a book, or even just implementing new policies for their current students. Like what is a word of encouragement or a lesson that you've learned that could potentially be helpful for them on that journey? On the journey of branching outside of lessons. Yeah, or taking their lessons and really like elevating those, whether it's through using a method like yours or implementing some business practices like a stricter studio policy or something like that. Just any next step that they're ready to take oh, in 2024. Yeah. I, and I don't think listeners will be surprised to hear me say it, but I, I genuinely think that connection and community is critical for growth and success particularly in instrumental music teaching when you're working from home on your own all the time. If you want to have success, I really do think, yes, number one, listen to podcasts like Ashley's, listen, learn, read, that's all fantastic. But the biggest growth you're probably gonna have is when you're doing things with other people and you can ask questions and feel like you're in a, in a tribe or a community, a group of people who are doing similar things. So I would really encourage teachers, uh, it could be an MTNA, it could be an online community, whatever it is, connect with other people who've been there and done that or are doing it and you will have more success for sure. Oh, such a good nugget. I, I also say that all the time. It's so true, I fully, Fully agree with you. It's um, hard doing solopreneur stuff. It is really it hard. It is. And it's so much, <laughs> I mean, even if it's in a small way, if you can find someone that can be a little bit of an expander, that's like a little further down the journey, or even just a group of people that are along the same journey. I, you're mm. so right. It makes it so much more enjoyable and also easier um, because you mm. can learn from those people as well. Yep. And I, I mean, I'm in a, I've been in a, in a mas mastermind, what's what I call a yes. mastermind, basically same. a group of similar people. Yeah. You've probably got one. Uh, and I've, I've been in that group for years and it's, there's how many of us, six, five, five of us all around the world, but all in music online educations businesses. And mm -hmm. it's just so important and so useful just to be able to, you know, we've got a WhatsApp group and you just throw questions out there and share resources and uh, yeah, fantastic. That's what I yeah. encourage people to do. I love that. Cool. Well, Tim, it's been such a joy to chat with you. Thank you so much for coming on, sharing your story, um, sharing your book with us. It's been really, really great. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this. Thank you so much for having me. Yep. And we'll talk soon. And to the listeners, you can do this. I hope you have an incredible week and I will talk to you next time. Bye, everybody.
Hey there, thank you for being here. I love connecting with you every single week. And one of my favorite parts of connecting with you is actually getting to know you. I created a free community for business-minded piano teachers to come together every single week, connect and learn even more tangible strategies for business streamlining and scaling. You can join using the link in the show notes and I can't wait to get to know you.